Hello and welcome to season two, episode three of AngelCast with me, Adam. Me, Andy. And me, George. Um, today in the matched play section, we're going to be talking about some of those new releases or upcoming releases we saw on the preview. Um, and then we're going to focus in a bit more detail on the Auric Warclans battle tome. In the narrative section, Adam and George are going to talk about their recent experiences in Inquisitor, and in particular, uh, their characters. And in Open, we're going to be discussing a range of hobby topics, including painting and models and hobby more generally. Fantastic. Can't wait. Um, we're going to take a short break. Uh, we'll see you after this. Welcome back to Matched Play. Um, I don't know how many of you watched the most recent uh, preview at time of recording. I had no idea it was happening, so I've been waiting for like a year for the Soulblight reviews. Well, about 10 years, really, since my seventh edition Vampire Counts Army. Uh, I think you had one as well, George, didn't you, with a big zombie dragon? I did. Um, I think he was over a 1,000 points in one model. Yeah, he was super dumb with like Red Fury and all the, all the goodness. Um, and man, the flank charges in seventh as well. I think you, you deleted mm. Tom's um, dwarf army in one turn because mm. everything was so nicely lined up. Um, so yeah, new Soul Blight looks incredible. Um, I was I was wandering around Revendreth in uh, Shadowlands, uh, so Vampire Land, and as I as I was watching just, the Twitch, just for clarity, and, that's World of Warcraft reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm in the vampire part of um, the World of Warcraft at the moment, and yeah, those those reveals looked great, particularly the Felbats and the Blood Knights. But it's nice to see updated zombies and skeletons as well. I'm less excited by them, but they look way better. Um, yeah. Um, the other thing, Kragos, Broken Realms, Kragos. Yeah, so I, I saw this and I and my, my heart was filled with joy as a destruction player. Um, now I may be completely wrong, and this quite often happens, so you are, I, but carry on, yeah. Um, so one of the Broken Realm stories uh, is about Godrak and some giants and some ogres and kind of just a general modge podge of destruction going deep underground, going somewhere to go and kind of do something. Um, and I wondered whether it was anything to do with this kind of beast grave mm -hmm. stuff that's been happening in, in the underworld setting and it, the idea of awakening some kind of beast. And then it turns out a beast has indeed been awoken and, and my hope is um that it's going to be some kind of non green skin non ogre destruction thing maybe even uh kind of destruction mortals or or destruction elves or something mm -hmm. some, maybe a destruction magic like who knows but it's exciting it seems it's likely We've had, we've had rumours for quite a long time, actually, that there's going to be um, an, a brand new destruction range um, that's even rumoured to be in the AOS 3 starter set. Um, so there's conjecture as to whether Kragos, it's quite a destruction-y name, it doesn't have F or anything at the end of it, um, might be that new kind of uh, destruction god-level character, as you say, like, like uh, Godrak. However, from the image, the... Um, the image that was in the video on the release, which you can check out on the Warhammer community site. They've got a really good roundup of all of the previews. Um, it's Kanothi. 
it's a centaur with hooves. Um, it's a centaur with um, the sorts of horns on its head that the Kanothi miniatures we've seen already have. It's very reminiscent of kind of uh, Wild Hunt or um, Orion miniatures from back in the old world. Um, so, yeah, it doesn't mean that there isn't a destruction army for Gur coming, but we know that the Kanothi are from Gur. We know that's where Beastgrave is set. There's a Kanothi warband in Beastgrave specifically um, that were then ported in. Is that right, Andy? Or were they in a different. Um, I'm just. I'm just you just sparked something in my head, actually. Have the, have the big boxes that they've done, have they been realm based? Yes. Um, I'm not sure about the very first one. I imagine it was Heish. Um, or uh, uh, was it Akshi with the Realmscape Wars, the first one? Yeah. Um, I, I, I hadn't really picked up on that. But... The, um, certainly um, uh, the Stormcast and um, Nighthaunt one, Soul Wars, was that a box or just a yeah, campaign the, event? The, that the was, that was Shaish. The Goblin one was Giran, wasn't it? Was it Giran? Um, what did anyway. the Goblins come with? Was that with Sylvanath? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, so yeah, Giran. So, yeah. Um, Skaven yeah. and Flesh Eater Courts might be uh, one that bucks that trend, but you might be right. They, that, that could be a good call. Um, may, maybe it's addition boxes as well, right? So the... Mm. Um, yeah. Go on, George. I was going to say just, you know, whatever happens, fair props to Games Workshop for producing some outrageously impressive miniatures. Um, and, you know, if I... If, if ten years ago you'd shown some the soul, if you'd shown me the soul blight stuff ten years ago, mm-hmm. it would have blown my tiny mind. Um, you know, and and it's I think the best range of models they have produced yet. I 100% agree. And I think one of the things I particularly like about it is, although we've not seen the whole range yet, um, and I, you know, there's quite a few ranges so far that are a bit Marmite, um, particularly the elf stuff. Um, you know, I personally don't like the styling of the Deepkin, but I, I can appreciate that it's well done. Um, I also really don't like the Lumineth for the most part, but a lot of people seem to love them. Um, they've not so far gone quite as like uber strange, like, realm creature stuff uh, we may well see some kind of horrible aberration ma- massive vampire creature for soul blight um but the um the models we've had so far are kind of updates of classic models in a way that's much more faithful to the gothic setting of kind of somewhere you, like you say that but the, the the zombies that are in are in here aren't quite as i think the cursed city models are the more comical end of the of the zombie range but there are the theme goes through right and i you know there was this whole the whole meme thing of the the um skeletons in cursed city being photo bombers yeah I, I am i am left with the feeling i'm just looking at the images now on on the website i'm left with the feeling that if i made an army of this i think i'd have to call them the boogie knights <laughs> <laughs> but that's a cool theme right they haven't got they haven't got weird tall cow hats mm. And everyone's complaining about the kind of more monopose zombies from uh, Curse City, which I really like anyway, is that they all have the same thing, but there's actually a narrative thing behind it. They've all been impaled and staked and put in the ground because, you know, people are scared of vampires, rightly so. Absolutely. (laughs) I I completely agree with you, Adam, in terms of, you know, the updating of some classic models from like the Blood Knights, the Foul Bats. Um, all that's you know, needed doing. I mean, the Blood Knights oh, are gorgeous. The the fine cast slash metal ones, but they were like a thousand pounds each. Um, the I'm so bats, 
when it when are the Felbats from like 1992 or something the previous ones yeah at least it's like a furry winged pig uh, i painted a couple <laughs> they were hard work i think i think they were fourth edition fantasy okay that's a long time so they, ago they, they have been out for a very long time yeah. um but you know even the vampire models on foot are, are like when they redid the vampire range in seventh or, or eighth and they made the vampires a little bit more chunky mm-hmm. um it's kind of it's kind of got those like overtly gothic armor tropes but also going back to the like the the bloodlines a bit more yeah. um certainly and, and the ones got we've that balance. the ones we've seen in preview for the underworld's warband are very bloodlines mm-hmm. um which I think is really interesting. And they've got all these kind of semi-IP'd um, images, haven't they, and, and tropes. So it doesn't surprise me they've gone back to them, but it's a shame that we've waited so long. Um, and, and I'm sure when you, when you get these in your hand, they'll be beautiful, but I, I do applaud them a little bit for not gratuitously turning these models into mega negative zone 3D sculpts like some of the things we've seen recently where you just like... Why did you have to make that so complicated? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like Altharian, which you like—that's a nice display model or something for Games Day. But I don't really know how I'm going to approach painting that for a day-to-day battle, or transporting it, or transporting it. And that's before you even talk about the like jumping archer fox guy. <laughs> the le- the less said about, it, the better, in my opinion. I, um, I, I I love how you can just load a factual statement with such dis- <laughs> disdain. <laughs> I mean, my main problem is loading factual statements without disdain because my voice sounds disdainful innately. I think um, I'm massively excited about Soul Blight. I had a bit of an abortive start to a Flesh Eater Courts army last year, and I'm hoping that there's some miniature range crossover particularly like it if flayers continue or the crypt flayer models uh continued to be battle line for soul blight but i suspect that they're they're not going to be um i wonder if they are too weak ip yeah quite possibly and kind of just like big giant bat dudes they look a lot like um uh is it morbius in marvel um, I thought that might not be the name, but the the guy who features in Spider Man and in Blade a fair amount and like accidentally He's got turns his own into... film now. Yes, yeah, yeah, that guy, yeah, Morbius. Um, is, isn't he gonna? I thought he was gonna be in Venom too. Anyway, that's massively off topic. But they literally look like him when he transforms. Like the face, the fact that it's just a dude with massive bat wings. Um, even down to the kind of like original scheme of like slightly purpley gray skin. Um. And yeah, you can kind of imagine the very, uh, very 1990s Marvel ripped trousers because, you know, obviously all your other clothes fall off, but it's a kid's book, right? So they have to have just ragged shorts on. <laughs> um, I, I imagine they'll probably use the zombie dragon vampire lord. Um, or possibly. I mean, he, I think the so. Looks like it I think it's close Manfred. enough to this aesthetic to stay in. It's a relatively mm. modern kit, right? It was one of the late, it was on a massive monster base in 8th edition. Um, obviously, it's, you know, six, seven years ago now. But in terms of a lot of the range, that's not that long. Um, it's it's obviously the same age as the entire Flesh Eater Courts range, which they're not replacing. Um, there's been a lot of conjecture that they're going to do a new zombie dragon or flying creature of some kind because it's in the 
artwork in the background that's kind of flying about but it's a zombie dragon with a red armored vampire on the back of it I, like that could just be an artist doing a cool picture of of an existing kit yeah i mean in the auric book there's a there's a flying more crusher that people have done a very good job of converting but yes dan, that, that dan ain't, Callahan that ain't in how particular. the model appears in the shop right <laughs> yeah if you check out um at tyromancer dan callahan is uh the guy you want to go for um go to for uh flying um more crushers speaking of more crushers um i think it's time to move on to talking about the auric war clans book that was a very nice segue andy i'm sure that was intentional my pleasure um <laughs> yeah so long story short we're very excited for soul blight but let's talk about something you can actually play at the moment albeit on tts uh, which is right. the auric war clans book. yeah um so i've painted some some of them but I haven't read the book, so I'm not going to lead on this section. So well, I, I think I came to it earlier than you, George. So maybe I start and then I hand off to you, mm. which is a cunning way of me avoiding the detail that I think you probably have in your head. Um, <laughs> so we touched on this last time I was on, which was two episodes ago. Um, as Adam says, he's, he's painted on me, painted on me for me. Um, I came at this from a perspective of, um, well, I, you could argue it two ways. The first way is, um, we had a great way back in the day when you could actually meet people and do tournaments. Like oh, I, I can't heady uh, days. I, maybe it was days. a dream. Maybe it was all a dream. Um, but um, we went to Brotherhood and I got tabled in a turn and a half by a very nice Auric War Clan army. <laughs> and I was like, I want that. It beat my army. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, you can listen to episode one in terms of the thought process I went through to get there. But it comes back to the same thing actually with Soul Blight, which is. Um, when I selected that army, I had in the back of my mind that I wanted to use all AOS models. I didn't want to go back to old ranges. A, because they're a different scale, they're a different design, you know, everything. Like, they're just they're just different. And they fit in. Odd boys fit in, but they're just a bit different. The meta says odd boys are better. So what? I don't really care. I think the brute models are great models. So I got Adam in the same way that I got him to paint 30 hex race, for which I'm sure he will never forgive me. I got him to paint me 30, 30 uh, brutes. So I've got, a, I've got a solid army there to play with that I just want to put on the board and smash around. Um, segueing into George. You can still hear me, by the way. I'm just yeah, yeah. Yes. Just yeah, we can hear you, George. Um, so segueing over to, to George, um, I went with um a combined arms force because i wanted to put a war dock in it because at the time i designed the list it was a really cool addition to have um which meant i which meant i couldn't do a pure auric army um so so a lot of the kind of list design choices were denied to me in the first instance and since i haven't played it and i and i have yet to have my pigs ready which i know are coming um you know, I've, I've basically got one list until I get the extra models. But George, why don't I hand over to you at this point? Because you can talk in a bit more detail about um, kind of list design. So I came to the, the War Clans book for, for a couple of different reasons. The first is uh, I, I, I'm trying to get a bit more au fait with smashy armies. Um, I've historically played mostly kind of caged defense control style armies uh things like my my negative play experience gits list and <laughs> my and my negative play experience tts luminaphs list oh, and so there's a recurring theme which is that it's miserable to play against uh but it's also you know it, it's mostly fun for me 
but it's also a bit repetitive. And so I wanted to kind of try something else. Um, I completely agree with you, Andy, about the range. I mean, the 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 brutes, the the pigs, the cabbage. Sorry, more crusher. Um, the war chanters, the um, the shaman uh, with um, shaman are all fantastic, right? Really, um, like uh, they were quite early on in a AOS, but they were just like, you know, very much a you know what happens if you turn Warhammer up to eleven sort of situation, and you've got these these Ard boys, uh, which. As, as you say, are, are very good in the game, very good unit, but um, of a of a a bygone era, uh, a weapon of a more uh, of a more um, refined age, as it were. Mm. Um, so I, I was not very tempted that at all until I saw the new Blood Bowl Black Orcs come out, and I was like, "Ooh!" And I, I saw those, and I thought, "Those are my art boys. Give them some weapons." give them some weapons, put some shields on them, and off we go. Um, and uh, and I, so that was kind of my, my first in. I thought, you know, this that was the one thing keeping me back from building an Iron Jaws army. And then I saw those and I thought, right, that's, that's a, you know, 2023 project lined up. Um, so that, that was the first thing. Um, and then I started having a look at the book. So I, so I got myself a digital download and... Um, uh, a legal one, just to clarify, and uh, and started having looked through, and I actually didn't come to the conclusion of going for an Iron Jaws, uh, going for a mix, big uh, war, uh, uh, big war army. I went for the Iron Jaws one instead, um, just because I thought it was a more effective, kind of early game aggressive army. But um, I was just wondering, Andy, you know you having kind of put together this big war list why with the war dot aside if you weren't including a war dot would you have gone for an iron jaws only or would you still have gone big war so my my i i don't know to be honest i i mean i could do that's the only thing that's keeping me in in big war per se I mean, my my design ethic on these things has always been, and this is how I went about my Nighthorn army, which is partly partly why I ended up with so many of them, um, is because I sat there and said, well, you know, I, I want to play an army which is, in quotes, competitive with a small C because it's me that's standing on, on one side of the table, which means it automatically isn't. But um, I also want it to be themed. And the way I theme things is... The way I think it actually it originally they wanted formations to be, which is something of a of a narrative element to your army, and you know they gave all gave them all these extra special abilities and artifacts and all kinds mm. of fun things as well, which means you get more stuff. But in the bigger picture, I tend to build my armies around um, around formations. Mm. So what I would what I would do once I've got those gore grunters in there, I would probably go back into the book and start looking at what formations I can build and how I can fit them into an army. And if that took me down um, the Iron Jaws route, that's probably what I would do. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So I, I think I came at it from a slightly different perspective. And, you know, this is perhaps part of a wider conversation about, you know, list building and list construction. But I basically looked at the, the current TTS meta and said, casting spells unless you are a spell casting army is essentially pointless um because of uh, that that was my kind of hot take 
as it were, uh, just because of um, you, you've got these armies like you know Teclas, Nagash, Croak, um, Zench, and 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 so on that that are so good at magic and are so good at shutting down magic that I thought right well you know if I was to write any destruction list would I even have a spellcaster in it? And unless I have a really good reason not to, uh, a really good reason to, my answer was probably no. So at the moment I do have a, a weird knob shaman in because that the, the hand of Gork spell is so good against non-heavy spellcasting armies. So, you know, you can pick up, you can kind of go and score an objective. But I thought, right, what is my way as a destruction player of attacking heavy spellcasting armies? And it was, well, you just go and smack them really hard in the face as hard as you possibly can. Um, and and that was, I guess, why I went for the kind of Iron Jaws one, because I thought, you know, I can, I can turn one, turn two, be right in there causing massive damage. Yeah, because I guess... Your and if you've got that one critical cast, getting it off in the first turn or two, where your opponent hasn't had the time to get in range for a dispel, other than is it Croak, um, who can just dispel everywhere, um, it, it it biases you towards <laughs> Adam's shaking his head. Um, it biases you towards an Alpha Strike army, right? Because that's the only time mm. you can reliably get the spell off, I suppose. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the 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 in the Iron Jaws, there is the Blood Tooth, um, who can have a hand of Gork that cannot be dispelled once per game, yeah. which I was and and they also are an additional plus one to charge. So I was looking at you know whether it's Iron Sons or Blood Tooths and uh, whether I should go down that route uh, and you know guarantee a hand of Gork with a plus four charge with my unit of Ard Boys, which is quite you know quite consistent, plus you know, two units of six pigs and a cabbage and three war chanters and just go attack and what are you going to do? So, you know, it's it's I'm I'm trying some things out, but you know, I, I just it's it's a shame in terms of spell casting and you know how I feel some armies just shouldn't use their laws. Adam. Yeah, I, I think it's um, the, that choice of which of the um, war clans you're going to go for is really interesting. I, I found that particularly as you, on the war scroll, quite a lot of the units are relatively slow moving, and then you've got all of those mm -hmm. extra kind of charge bonuses. And um, is it mighty destroyers that you can? Is that a command point where yeah. you can move if you're? Uh, yeah, so you, you yeah. can you've got a lot of kind of like arbitraging yourself. You can suddenly be somewhere in a way that people aren't expecting. A little bit like Nurgle when it was at mm. the start of second edition. Um, am I right in understanding that for um, the big war, you've essentially got a point system, a bit like blood tithe points or something that you can spend on abilities. Whereas for Iron Jaws, yeah, you're more along the lines of like you've got a set of upgrades and it's com more command point based, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was one of the reasons why I kind of thought Iron Jaws was was a, a more interesting angle because um, they get that smashing and they get the smashing and bashing ability to kind of do lots of attacks one after another if you kill a unit, and you also get the, this mighty destroyer's ability, which is bananas. Yeah, um, I, I think you know if you do it three times in a turn, you know, and you're like hero phase kill this yeah, and, and or move this twice. Like, I can see how against, like, so, for example, Seraphon, if you're against an army where you struggle to get to grips with them, I think that you might get unstuck a little bit. Um, but certainly, if you can pin them in and hit them in the right order, you can kill a 2,000-point army in a turn. 
it's it's it seems wildly powerful if you set it up properly so i can i can i can really see how that's doing a lot of lifting i think for me i would i would want to go for the more kind of funky um big war thing where you're you're try you're trying to not get stuff killed so that you have more points for the next turn and um it's a bit more kind of like reactionary and situational to what points you have available i suppose but i can see why that's less kind of immediately meta particularly at the moment as you said with the magic stuff i i think it's why there's you know it, it's what's really nice about this book is that there are different armies you can use with the same models which is really nice yeah i think there's a the big one is great um the uh the iron jaws specific stuff is great but there are some books where you know you have you have the one thing that works with these models and that's kind of it and it's quite nice to have almost two different approaches in the same book i don't yeah, know what your thoughts are on that and, and again going going back to episode one where i was talking about whether <laughs> i was going to select this list or not people may remember um i i was looking at a number of different things and one of them was um deepkin and i wanted to do like a a, a spread list on that where you actually have reavers in it like actual people um mm. rather than just a gazillion slippery things um and that that feels still feels like a book which is basically a monolist right so mm. i think there is more variety in here and yeah. there's a whole untouched section of bone splitters right where yeah. if they ever it's bring very out good. if they ever boost the size of the models um and i, I think you could do a whole another segment on models in the in the whole range which are good enough to, that would love an upgrade but are good enough not to get fixed bone splitters yeah. um there's a, there's a whole bunch of them where you look at them and you think that'd be really skeletons uh, uh, you know although we're getting them now i suppose through soul blight but there's there's a bunch of models in the range that um aren't getting upgraded because they're just good enough not to change yeah Gips i think is another one right bone splitters is a really good example of that and um kind of gets is almost a counterexample because you keep the mainstay units that were sculpted way back for battle for skull pass but then you get an extension to it whereas bone splitters so far i guess because they were eventually but they they weren't in the original iron jaws book so the the bone splitters no. range there wasn't anything added was there in aos it was no. just a book for an existing range they had their own book right they had a savage oryx book mm. if i remember yeah yeah you're right um so I, th I think that's right. And um, having having painted both armies, in fact, so I painted a cunning ruck with George a couple of years ago. Um, the bone splitters that, model. Would you say are, that was one of the worst experiences of your life, Adam, where we had to paint a cunning ruck in less than twenty four hours? I think pre twenty twenty, I'd have said that pretty confidently. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, bo the the bone splitters are horrid models in comparison to mm -hmm. the Iron Jaws, um, and I exclude the Ard Boys from that because they're a similar era. In fact, the Ard Boys are probably older than the current plastic um, Savage Oryx. Um, but the the Brutes, the Moor Crusher, um, the Gorgrunters, the War Chanters—they're amazing. They're such good models. Um, like really, really just nailed the AOS concept, as George said. Of and, it, and it's great to see that new, up to eleven. That, it's great to see that new battle battle pig slash squig right thing. Over forty k pig hog. Yeah, it's it's um no, it's it's got. I I was looking on the website. The one on the website has convention. Let's call them conventional weapons. It's a, it's orc with a K, and it's not orc, so it's definitely a forty k release. The one that they and they previewed yesterday. Yeah, 
Um, it's it in the 40k section, but yeah, yeah, it's absolutely to... usable. Yeah, so it's things like that where, because I mean, at the margin, you could say the Auric range is a little bit flat. There's not a huge amount actually in it. So For putting sure. new models like that, and it just I think massively improves the diversity of it. If um, if they hadn't recombined Iron Jaws and Bone Splitters into one kind of bigger kind of city style book when they did, um, I would really have expected more models. Um, Iron, Iron Jaws in particular feels flat. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've we've been taught. I know Chris Tomlin talked a lot on the Black Sun when that was still running about. You know, where's Wave Two? Where are the uh, Oryx with massive crossbows? Um, you know, and I, I think that would have been, I think that would have been great um, to have a bit more depth to a modern range. As a, you know, I, I would, I would have binned off the Ard Boys and would, you know, as George says, there, you've got the Blood Bowl sculpts, which are much nicer. Um, but there we are. Um, that's really interesting, guys. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, playing against the uh, big war that I painted as soon as we can, potentially not all that far in the future at this point. Um, and um, George, I think if you can get hold of those um, Blood Bowl uh, Black Orcs, um, it'd be a good army to do. It's a shame you sold your Gordrak. It, it is. Although, <laughs> um, uh, I was actually, I actually lied last time when I said I hadn't done any hobby. What I've actually done is I've taken all my hobby and I've put it into a very small box, which I can seal away <laughs> Um, and stop small hands from pulling scalpel blades out. I think that's um, prudent. Okay, we're going to take a um, short break and we'll be back in uh, a couple of moments with the narrative section. Welcome back. Um, today in the narrative section, we're going to continue talking about the battle for the Emperor's soul, um, the game Inquisitor, uh, and particularly... We're going to be looking today at the characters and setting of uh, Petrogard, which is George's um, kind of forge world, Adeptus Mechanicus world, um, that in theory, our in-person Inquisitor campaign is going to take place in, um, in the 28 millimeter scale at some point in person in the real world, honest, perhaps not in the 41st. That's, that's certainly the plan. Certainly yeah. the plan. Um, so... Um, I guess Adam, we'll, we'll start with your uh, with your warband. Um, so you knew there was a campaign coming up. Uh, you're someone who has played more than your fair share of Inquisitor. It would be fair to say over the uh, over the millennia, a higher um, than average amount, indeed. So, so what what was your thoughts about this campaign? Why did you decide to go with a completely new warband um, mm. rather than going with with some of your kind of tried and trusted tested heroes of yore um heroes and then, is stretching it <laughs> and and then you know what having made that decision uh mm. to do a new warband how did you come to the um the characters that you did so um a lot of my initial kind of way into inquisitor was playing with mike when we were at school together um Mike's taking part in this campaign as well, which is exciting. And the only kind of holiday I took last year, he and I went and camped in a field and got very drunk and talked quite a lot about Inquisitor because you'd suggested that we might do a campaign. So that was sort of uh, the jumping off point again. And Mike, uh, who hopefully we'll speak to on the podcast at some point if he's, he's game to talk about his characters, um, is resurrecting his character, um, Piotr Makalor, who is a very 
very radical um, and not in a sort of 1980s cool sense of the word, um, like mega evil inquis ex-inquisitor, I suppose. Um, and um, there's really good narrative reasons that he's bringing that character back. Um, and we talked about that and I couldn't justify them for my previous player character, um, who was Inquisitor Jacket. And he, um, he died pretty horribly about a thousand years before um, the current um, arc of the 41st millennium, which is obviously now the 42nd millennium in 40K with the return of Robert Gilliman and the whole kind of um, schism that's going on in the, in the Imperium at present, which I don't follow super closely. I haven't read a lot of the books. So I've basically just been getting the preview videos from Games Workshop whenever there's something I mean, that's big needs, happening. Really. Yeah. So time has moved on, um, which isn't to say that you know, like good Marvel characters, there isn't a way of resurrecting the old characters and, and using them. Um, and I'm really excited to see how deranged Mike's character is at this point, considering the, the former derangement some thousands of years before. Um, I I thought I'd, it's time to do something new. And we'd done a lot of radical stuff um, and evil stuff and things that perhaps were not in the best interests of the Imperium. Uh, in inverted commas so I thought right well let's do a total um, 180 on that and go for somebody who is mega puritan um, that was basically my jumping off point um, and part of that as well um, was because of uh, recent experiences playing Curse of Strahd which listeners of series one of Angel Cast will be familiar with the, um, right, the seek, uh, secret life let's say yes traitor is one word for it andy thank you never forgotten never forgiven it was matt's fault i maintain that it was matt's fault uh my my paladin morianning was perhaps not as virtuous as you might have hoped uh and we all nearly died um but there we are um i did in fact die um so i thought well it would be quite nice to enter a campaign in a more kind of um direct way perhaps um we were talking about play styles for um age of sigmar earlier and actually my play style is generally relatively direct alpha striking um type build um and um yeah the inquisitor i came up with uh, or at least the leader of my warband that i came up with um is 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 quite direct um, there's a bit of fluff text which i'm going to read out fluff text is not a popular term anymore is it but i wrote it so i'm going to say that it's a bit of fluff to establish his background um so he is lars herman eradicator of the ordo malleus is a, a new breed of inquisitorial agent, not seconded to an investigator or an inquisitor, but working directly with the authority of an inquisitor lord, bypassing the usual hierarchy and some of the typical fail-safes in a system as old as holy terror. His mandate is to destroy the physical manifestations of chaos wherever they should appear throughout the Imperium. His journey is never-ending and zealous in its execution. He's travelled far from Saturn and his uh, headquarters, getting hardened and more direct with each mission and the repeated heavy losses of his followers. The men and women under his command and in his employ have carte blanche when it comes to pursuing leads, although they often find the procedural side of his methodologies to be a stop-start. Um, a dead cultist struggles to tell you where his friends are. Uh, the rate of attrition in the Ordo Malleus uh, new eradication strike force is, uh, is high, so anyone that lasts more than a few orbits finds that proximity to Lars Herman brings power, respect, but above all, 
danger. Um, so but, but as we as we know from oh, because everyone has read Eisenhorn because it's freaking amazing. It is great. Um, all Puritans, all Inquisitors start Puritan and they all end up radical. Yes, which is the story I wasn't telling, which is that Inquisitor Jacket back in about 2002 was super Puritan and they ended up killing a planet and um, trying to invade terror. But, you know, never mind. Best laid plans of mice and men and all that doesn't survive contact with uh, warp demons, unfortunately. Indeed, indeed. When you were designing the characters, so you, so you know, you went through the process of thinking, I want to do something new. I want to kind of move away from what I'd done previously. Was there a sense of thing? Was there any sense of I've got a cool idea for a model, and I'm going to build a character around that model? Or did you think I've got an idea for a character, and then, and then, you know, once you've kind of fleshed out the character and kind of crafted the character, did you then think? Um, what model would best suit him or was there kind of a, a, a you know was there any kind of tension between those two poles yeah it's a really good question actually um and something we touched on in the previous episode i think um ordinarily i would be um mostly kind of character first uh with inquisitor um this time round um was the exact opposite uh in fact um i saw i can't remember what he's called now um, but the the Black Library um, Custodes character that comes with the Sister of Silence, um, v- Valerian or something. That's a Game of Thrones thing, but the guy with the big... I think big... it's Valerian, yeah. Valerian, yeah. Um, and I just thought that's a sick model. And at the time, I didn't have the opportunity to paint any Custodes, although I have just been commissioned to do a whole army of them. So, you know, it's short-lived, um, which is great. Um I thought that's really cool. I like the armor style. Um, it's slightly more Baroque, um, so it's going to be easier to fit into an Inquisitor situation. Um, and I'd been building a lot of Necromunda models uh, for Alex's Ash Wastes campaign. So I had a, a huge array for once of kind of 41st millennium uh, appropriate bits spread across my desk. Um, and um, I had a voucher for Goblin Gaming, uh, I think off the back of ordering lots of Iron Jaws uh, for Andy and various other things through my account. So free models is good. Thanks, Andy. Um, and um, yeah, so I ordered, I ordered him and um, it just kind of came together. So I've, I've kept, um, I haven't painted him yet actually. So then maybe that'll um, push me to do that this week. Um, so I've, I've kept the basic uh, kind of torso legs uh, and head configuration, but I've actually taken away quite a lot of the overly kind of winged shoulder pads and things. Um, he's got um, he's got bare arms because he's going to pummel people into the ground, and he's got a uh, a pretty large hammer from the uh, the Goliaths, um, as well as a um, a combi plasma, and those bits just kind of fell into place. Really, it was quite an organic evolution. I love the uh, the temple floor design from the actual Black Library miniature, but wanted to be using the Necromunda bases. Um, because I like painting them and have a style of doing it. So it was a shortcut. And I'm, I'm also doing a 28 mil version of Mike's Warband. So I wanted there to be consistency. And that's that's the range I had. So I, I broke up the kind of temple basing as if there was like fallen masonry onto the, um, onto the uh, uh, more kind of like um, metallic tread plate flooring. So yeah, he's, uh, I'm, I'm really happy with it came together. And that basically was what led directly to the character design. So um, he's, he's super strong. <laughs> um, 
his ballistic skill is not as good as his weapon skill, um, which is a concern when you're using a combi plasma. You don't have many shots, right, with the actual plasma part, and it's dangerous. Uh, so, you know, typically, if you were kind of min-maxing, which, of course, you don't want to do with Inquisitor, you would probably not give a plasma pistol to somebody who isn't the best shot in the game. You know, he's not bad. He's above the kind of average human, but he's literally tra a trained killing an interrogation machine so um yeah um well, yeah what, what briefly briefly just what about the rest of the warband then so you know you i guess so i'm still humming and ahhing about the third character um because I, I i ended up doing the whole warband in that way so building the models I, I was really inspired to build some kind of archetypes and then try and figure out who they were this time around which is quite nice um the second one came together very easily um and her character came to mind very quickly um, but the third one i'm still not decided i've got two two options and neither of them have a name quite yet um but um yeah so the the second character in the warband is uh she's survived longer than the others literally because she's the pilot so that may not continue to be something she may not continue to survive because of course the backstory is um you know fiction and then what actually happens in the course of the campaign will will, will affect things so she is natalia jacket which you may recognize as the inquisitor's surname um and i don't think i'm actually going to do anything about that i think that's just for my own kind of like there's some kind of in-universe thread um you know I, I i don't think it's necessary to kind of for her to even know that that's her origins you know a thousand years have passed um maybe not this campaign exactly yeah, if she survives, there might be some way of exploring her backstory and in, in more more detail and fleshing it out. But it was um, I'm talking about it now because it's been a year and we haven't played the campaign. But it was something I wasn't going to reference and see if uh, Mike's character picked up on it because, of course, he worked closely with her forebear. Um, and who knows how common surnames are in the 41st millennium? I don't. Somebody online probably does on Reddit, but that's probably best left to it. Uh, so I've got a bit of fluff text for her as well. Um, Natalia Jacket has seen it all. Flying for Eradicator Herman is perhaps her least dangerous job yet, and one of the more lucrative. Uh, Jacket knows that she has to be cagey to survive, and she's paid to get her boss out of situations. As a rookie Thunderbolt ace, she was the only one to make it back to base after a disastrous attack run at one of the moons of Valhalla. She was requisitioned into the Ordo Malleus pilot corps soon after and has been working for Herman ever since. He was impressed that she didn't bat an eyelid upon being presented with his inquisitorial seal. Some things run in families. So she's not she's not super fleshed out. I think I'm really interested to see what a pilot in a combat situation or a negotiation situation uh, will do, and I think that's going to be interesting to role play. Um, mm. uh, I haven't. I'm kind of still in a draft form of her character sheet, so I don't have a lot to say about it. But she's she's smart and she's quick, but she's not necessarily completely combat savvy. Um, so I think that's going to be an interesting contrast to somebody who's literally going to if not kick the door in then blow the door up and and i guess just you know a, a, a final you know a final thought for this segment is um what do you think that there's a unique challenge when it comes to doing inquisitor in terms of it being a, a heavily role play based idea where you have multiple characters who all have their kind of own aims and ambitions versus something like dungeons and dragons where you very much focus on one person mm. um and and how do you you know met, how do you kind of 
envision the heads of three people at once? It presents a massive challenge. Um, and I think one of the obvious pitfalls of a game like Inquisitor is that when one of your characters ends up in combat for some reason, you naturally, unconsciously try to help them out in a way that perhaps doesn't directly follow. You know, you, you have to really, and this is where a good GM comes in and says, you know, is that really what would happen? Um, your instinct just to start moving in that direction would support characters or, or whatever it might be. I think one of, uh, you know, a, a good example of this is um, how massively callous Mike's Inquisitor is. Um, I, I don't, there's not enough, there's not enough uh, room on a side of A4 to list the names of the henchmen that he's had over the years who've just been left as a bloody smear somewhere while he's just off, possibly not even really doing the mission. Um, so it, it comes down to attitude, but it, it's quite hard. It's, it's difficult to do. Um, I, I imagine, and I don't know, so, you know, recently we've been playing with only one or one or two characters on TTS, getting used to the system more than anything in practice um again but um i suspect that recent work stuff i've had to do kind of multi-rolling and shows and stuff will really help because you are literally going right i'm doing this now this is a this is the attitude and the kind of super objective for this person so mm. um yeah i've always been quite intrigued in that i know a lot of actors who do role-playing games but i haven't done role-playing games with them um so being somebody who sits in role-playing games with that as my day job is quite interesting because i'm like okay I'm here to play a game actually, but there's, you know, we were talking to Alex before about doing accents for Dungeons and Dragons. And that's not something I would have even thought of doing despite it being literally my day job. So, um, yeah. Interesting, interesting, exciting. Um, and, and, you know, a, a final thought, what's the thing if you were to say a single thing that you're looking forward to most uh, from playing Inquisitor again, what, what would it be and why? Kind of really perversely, um, so aside from the fact that I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody, I'm really perversely looking forward to the end of the campaign. Hmm. Like, I'm going to really enjoy playing the campaign. I always enjoy the games. But the thing that always sold me on Inquisitor, as, as Andy says, everybody's read Eisenhorn. Uh, I'm so excited about the kind of uber narrative. You know, the, this is our first meeting of these characters. Some of them won't survive at all. But in terms of creating a, a kind of window into a, a universe that's already pretty expanded at this point through Black Library novels, um, I want to know what happens to them after Petrograd. Um, it feels like a, we're starting again. It's almost like a prologue for me. And then that's just my own, having played far too much Inquisitor over the years. I mean, me and Mike had a linked campaign that ran for a decade with our mm. former characters. So I'm like it, it's thousands of hours in. Yeah. Um, and it's something I've been thinking about as well. So I've already fleshed out the next four potential wow. things that, so, so, you know, we're, we're going to Petrograd for now. Um, and then depending on what happens, uh, um, because, you know, depending on what happens with this whole kind of heart of Petrograd mm -hmm. um, mystery to be unfurled, you know, over over the course of three uh, you know three scenarios and you know a lot of inquisitor campaigns go short are, are a lot longer than that um but i i kind of had this envisioning of you know whatever happens will will open doors to other things and i've got you know plans for potentially um uh, a hive city uh which should be really exciting where you've got different factions vying for political power 
um, nice. and then and then different war uh, you know as the inquisitor you can kind of pick if you want to support one of these factions or if you want to just do your own thing or you know yeah. you're gonna get into get into bed with the uh um redemptionists or not and that sort of stuff speaking of which lovely models yeah i was uh, gonna say earlier like I was, I was reading back through the lars herman um fluff and i was like hmm i may have to buy the redemptionists because at some point i'm gonna need some more followers according to my own backstory and yeah. mega mega puritans that don't value their own lives definitely sound like a valuable asset and and I'm sure you know it's a, it's a great challenge that you'll have to to paint some of those new redemptionist models. You know you'll bring yourself to do it, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll force myself at gunpoint, I guess. Um, fantastic. Um, we're going to take a short break there, I think, um, and we'll be back talking um, in the open section. Welcome back. Uh, today in the open section, um, we're doing a bit of a, a hobby conversation, which is kind of my favourite sort of conversation um let's kick off with andy because i'm dead excited to hear what you have to talk about <laughs> so um episode one i actually in the introduction i teased that i, I was going to talk about what i've been doing on on the corn army and then promptly didn't discuss it in the rest of the rest of the episode because we have plenty of material and, you know there's only so much time people have to listen to podcasts go on adam uh, back in the day matt used to make us record the introduction after we'd recorded the episode so that it was factually accurate when you listen to the index but you know which which was actually my my suggestion i would was it, it for ah, that. Okay, yeah it fair, was yeah. fair play fair play um because I heard it on another podcast. Um, but anyway, so so corn. What have I been doing? Well, I've got loads of three quarters painted army, uh, three quarters painted miniatures. But um, you know, the the signature piece of a corn army is a bloodthirster, and I think apart from the fact that they're quite good, I think it's quite hard to field an army without one. And as per previous episodes, not just in this season, but the last one with my pink ghosts and various different things, um. I wanted my blue, my blue thirster, my blood thirster, um, to be distinctive. Um, that would and, be a spoiler, wouldn't it? A blue yeah, thirster. Blue, a blue thirster. <laughs> um, you know, I, I wanted him to be distinctive. I wanted him to be in the color scheme, which was a bit, kind of a bit tricky. I think a lot of the prob a lot of the issues I have with schemes and stuff is it generally fits most of the army, and then you have to figure out what there's one piece that it doesn't work on because, yeah, like there's two kinds demon. of armor on it like you know like the the brutes army is great but then you put blue armor blue armor on a gore grunter and it kind of unbalances it because or you've got the fur of the gore grunter right it changes yeah. the color scheme because all of a sudden there's loads of fur that you didn't have on it like any of the other fur. models at all and even yeah. with the more crusher it's totally different textures to the gore grunters indeed so um, so I was looking at my bloodthirster and was like, okay, so my main scheme for those who haven't listened to the earlier episodes is is a, another controversial color scheme, green corn. So the the background behind them is they're from a um, they're, they're called the Jade Scourge. Um, they rose up in an in an area of um, I actually haven't picked a realm for them, but I think I think it was going to be jungle, wasn't it? Jungle warfare yeah. stuff. Um, dark skinned because of um, they live in a very um, sunny part of the world. Um, and I want, and they grew up in this area where there's loads of jade in the ground. So they they make all their armor with jade, jade enamel kind of thing. It's quite anyway. So so I ended up with it being red, red, yellow, and green, which is a classic color scheme. 
um, but rarely seen because, for instance, GW just tends to do red, yellow, and blue, which is the other color wheel, because there's a color color wheel and a light mm -hmm. color wheel. Um, so our red, yellow, green, <clears throat> green armor, the yellow is the brass, red is corn, right? So I looked at the bloodthirster and I'm like, well, yeah, there's a load of red on the bloodthirster. I, I could just paint it red, but it's kind of a bit boring. You know, it's supposed to be an alternate color scheme. And yeah, it would be red and I could put my green armor plates on. I wasn't sure I, whether I wanted green armor plates. And I was like, well, I've got my three colors. How do I make it different? Well, I could put black, I could put as in black, black skin on it um, to make it different. But that's already been done as well because I think if you go, I think if you go onto the GW site, one of the one of the bloodthirsters on there is black, so that's not an alternate color scheme. And then I went off into the narrative, and I'm like, well, hang on a second. Demons reflect life, right? So everything everything that exists in in the demon realm or whatever you want to call it um, is there because it's manifested from from life, right? Yep. Well. Albinos work in life, right? I mean, albinos exist. So why can't you have an albino bloodthirster? It's a mirror of it's yeah. a mirror of life, right? So so my bloodthirster's white. And it's it's actually coming. I'm really pleased with that. Actually, it's coming up. It really looks well. amazing. Um we'll post some pictures. Um yeah, I can do those on to, the Angel um, Cast uh Twitter. I think I've got some from your um unless you want to post them and I'll retweet them. Um, we'll we'll figure it out. I need to at the moment the head's on a spruce stick, um, mm. and I need to take it off and blue tack it onto the head because it looks a bit naff without my bloodthirster with that without a head looks a bit silly. Um, but it's it's gonna look pretty cool. I've, so I've done I've done the main model now. Um, so it's albino skin. I've done the membranes of the wings red so that there is some red in there. Yeah, because I thought that was important. Um, and the head is pretty much done now. I've got to do the back of it. There's a little bit of brass embossing on it. Um, so the, the main body of it is done. And, I, you know, I've got to do all the weapons and stuff. So there's a shed ton of time left in it because I paint slow. But you get the idea of the model. And the extra thing that's going to be on there that I, that I haven't done yet that I need to teach myself how to do apart from anything else is I've got this idea of um, the brands that are on the back of the wings that typically are just painted as kind of almost scars in the wings i had this idea that actually it could be like brass newly pressed into the wings mm. so i'm going to try and paint the wing the back of the wings in hot metal um oh. so so fingers crossed it come comes together I'll, I'll as i say i'll do some work in progress post uh, posts now but it's it's kind of it's my unit apart from the fact that corn isn't supposed to be painted green according to certain people at gw um um, I think you know the albino skin gives gives it a real lift in in the army and, and something a little bit different. You're you're so, going to be um, you're going to be too nice to actually kind of call that out. I, I won't name names, but we we went to an event at Warhammer World where Andy's Magor's fiends were by far the best painted models in the room by you know a, an objective mile, and um, they were they were discounted for even kind of the top three, and I thought it was fucking ridiculous. Um, and apparently it's because corn isn't supposed to have green armor. Well, that's very exciting. Games Workshop. Don't forget, thanks, Infinite thanks Realms. very much. Yeah. But the, the last, the last little twist I will, I will give to the, to the whole bloodthirster theme is, um, most people, for whatever reason, someone came up with the idea of calling, um, bloodthirsters Billy because, you know, Billy bloodthirsters. Are, uh, is it because it's Billy goat and they're big fighty? Goat demons? Oh, it could be. I just assume it was alliterative, and someone thought Bill was 
maybe could be. It came to people like. Maybe I'm giving it more than it needs. So in, in the hope that there is someone someone listening to this podcast who actually has pop culture history that extends back into the 20th century, um, <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my bloodthirst is called Barry. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, I also like that he was called Barry No Mates the other day on a chat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As opposed to Billy No Mates. Um, it looks superb. I can't wait uh, for you to share photos with people uh, of, of what you've been doing. I'm really excited to see it on a table as well, uh, to be completely honest with you. I think one one day that will be a, a glorious thing to do. Um, George, you've, you've also been working on um, or starting to work on pretty big things. Yeah, so uh, I actually did yesterday the first bit of hobby I've done since last April. Hooray! Um, which was opening up my Mega Gargant box, which uh, my beautiful wife bought me for my uh, Christmas birthday present because I basically my, my birthday doesn't exist. I get I, I have a birthday around Christmas time. Um, well, so, between uh, Christmas and New Year, right? Yeah. So so apart from Adam, who will who will in in normal times make the trip most you know most people are too poor and too exhausted and too hungover to travel <laughs> i am all of those <laughs> things but loyalty is important um, is. um so so i've made a start on my uh, on my gatebreaker uh which i want to which is probably going to be my general i think i'm going to go for a breaker list um i'm uh, gonna hopefully magnetize the bits because mm. the kit is so vastly expensive that you know if i change my mind and wanted to crack and eat i don't have to start ripping bits off there's a really good youtube video on how best to do that um that i think simon yeah. Frohley had shared in the chat right when it came yeah. out i'm sure you're aware of it but listeners may not be so if you you are building a mega gargan and you want to make the most of the bits in the box um you can you can find on youtube how to magnetize the options efficiently but it being me, I'm not that keen with having a straight out of the box model. Um, I, I will always try and convert something, even if it's to the detriment of the model, basically. Um, uh, so the what I want to give my Mega Gargant, because it can get you can give it plus two attacks with the louder than words trait. Um, mm. And then I want to give it an incandescent rage blade, which on sixes causes an additional hit. So, uh, so hitting on threes against models with a two, three, or four plus save, twelve attacks, damage three with sixes exploding. Well, we tried it out on TTS, and it was quite explosive. I seem to recall. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't work against monsters because of how the the trait works. But I still just did your frost lord in one attack, yeah. which was amusing. Well, you you, you uh, hit a unit of Mornfang with it, and they disappeared. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what I'm thinking of doing in terms of a conversion is giving it the um, the uh, equipment off the not the screaming bell, it's the plague the plague sensor. From yeah, the, the plague, plague sensor. Uh, the plague uh, and painting, yeah, I'm painting like a basic flaming bowl. So it will be a, you know if it's from the realm of Ashki, um, and it will be and it will be a good opportunity for me to try a little bit of blending as well, where I want to try mm. and have like a you know, dark as a, kind of the smoke, and then have a, like the intensity of the the, the flame ball, nice. as it were. So I'm gonna. It's a very easy swap. I'm just gonna clip off the um, uh, where the gatebreaker flail comes in, and put this thing on top, which will aim make the weapon longer and more impressive, which is always <laughs> good. <laughs> the only, the only, the only other thing I would say there, which I, which just dawned on me as you as you showed us that on camera, which of course the viewers can't see, but I can try and explain it verbally. 
And I wonder whether you clip it down lower because the hook there could be like the hook of a hand that's been chopped off. Mm. Yeah, I, I was looking at that. Um, I, I don't know. I think I think potentially I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, kind of hold it up next to the model and think, you know, it's, does it work here? Does it not work here? Because actually having it as, the, as a hook hand is really cool. Actually, I hadn't thought about that, so that's that's really interesting. Um, so yeah, that's that's my that's my bit of hobby that I've been working on. Awesome! I'm glad that. I'd, well, maybe maybe we didn't inspire you back into it, but it's uh, it's good to have at least some time to to tinker with things, isn't it? Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about really um, in the section was just something that happened this week that was really generous. Um, some of you will know Chris Chant, um, who uh, uh, is quite big in the Blood Bowl scene. Uh, he has a company called Exit 23 Games, who I will add in uh, the tweets about this episode. Um, he's on Instagram um, primarily, though, um, and uh, they do kind of alternate Blood Bowl teams. They're also the UK stockist for... Um, uh, they're the UK stockist for Turbo Dork uh, Paints, which is an American paint company um, who are also on Instagram. Uh, so you should definitely check them out. Um, and um, Chris sent me his um, Zenobian Zeniths um, Blood Bowl team, which is kind of a non-sexualized uh, Amazon team for Blood Bowl. Uh, so all, all female models, which are just fantastic. I, re I really like them. And he's recently had, uh, I think through Kickstarter, although I might be wrong, a range of the star players that are available for uh, kind of human and uh, Amazon teams done uh, also as, as female miniatures. So he sent me those to paint um, for his website which we discussed. What we hadn't discussed was that he generally sent me the Turbo Dork uh, Metals range. So they've got some pretty cool names. Uh, we've got some uh, kind of silvery ones. So we've got Silver Fox, Six Shooter and Tin Star, um, as well as uh, some more kind of bronze and gold. We've got Gold Rush, Cartridge Family, which I really like, uh, Two Cents and Bullion. Um, now these are really kind of uh, thick, high pigment, um, uh, metals you've got to shake them well before using them um and um it definitely is the sort of paint that only really works over a dark undercoat probably black um i've been doing a lot of metals over kind of corax white or zenithal highlighting and then washing in uh, and that's been fine with vallejo but these are working really well over black and they really need um letting down with um a bit of medium um because they're they're really quite thick but the the finish is amazing i'm really are they actual metal or are they are they like most metallic paints um, i am not sure it says they're water-based acrylic um i don't know if there's actual metal in there um i've been licking my brush so i guess if i die horribly of lead poisoning we'll find out oh, if, if you, there's metal in there if you've been painting iron and you're anemic that's not a bad thing well <laughs> yeah i eat a lot of broccoli um <laughs> So yeah, I, I tested them out this week. Uh, I'm, as I've mentioned before, working on a Lord of the Rings army uh, on commission again. Um, and um, I've got 24 Morgul knights, plus a lot of ring rates and two winged Nazgul to paint, as well as some black Numenorians. So there's a lot of black cloth and dark kind of um, beaten iron armor um on those sculpts so um i've been using vallejo steel and um base coating metals with um whatever bolt gun metals called these days andy lead belcher lead belcher there you go um but i thought so i've been using that for the orcs in the army and for the warg riders and actually there's very little metal on the warg riders i'm still using the vallejo steel for the top highlight 
because I'm confident with it and it's a commission army. But for the kind of mid-tones and the, the main kind of gradient work, I'm leaning into the turbo dot paints. I've mostly used six shooter and 10 star so far with a little bit of uh, silver fox. And I have to say they go on incredibly well. And for doing kind of beaten metals, I'm doing quite a lot of um, stippling and working with, um, well, on the cloth, I'm doing cross hatching and um, kind of weathering for leather and stuff using individual brush strokes and then washes to, to tie stuff together between relatively extreme contrast. The metal kind of bouncing a stipple effect quite lightly with these is really super effective. Um, and, you know, dragging them across the plane and, and doing a bit of wet blending, which I haven't been super confident with other metals ranges before, is, is working pretty well. I'm still finishing off, as I said, with quite a stark um, edge highlight and, and direct single brush stroke chipping with the Vallejo silver. But I have to say, I'm, I'm mega impressed with the range. Um, and, yeah, because uh, I've been, I mean, my my corn stuff is done. I, I got some of the dark star paints to do the, yeah. the corn stuff. And that is, that did, the, part of the reason I asked the question is because that does, that is used, they've got real metal flakes in there, actual metal flakes. I mean, metal is real. And you were layering them with the green lacquer, right, to create shimmer. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of different things I've been trying with it. Um, the, main, the main thing about that stuff, it is ridiculously vibrant. And actually, to some degree, the contrast paints oh, saved me because um normal shade just doesn't knock it back it's yeah. just it's too strong right it just, yeah. it, it just disappears into the model and you get like a little bit of dark in the in the tiniest tiniest back crevice so I'm, i've actually been washing it with contrast because it's the only thing that really knocks it back and and puts a gradient across it and mm. um, but the coverage on it is terrible um i oh, mean really? it goes on it, it glitters like anything right you can you know you you freaking glance a model and there's like glitter that you can't get rid of and you've got to put like six coats of normal paint on to get rid of it sure. but to actually get good coverage is really difficult so i've ended up for all the brass work i've done on these mod on the corn models i've ended up my recipe now is actually a gw base coat and then a dark star base coat because yep. it's the only way you can get a really solid coat but yep. then when you're doing highlights and stuff the good thing about it is is it's it's kind of this translucent metal layer so it creates very subtle highlights very easily, but it, it's really difficult to put like a line highlight on it because it just disappears into the model. Okay. So on your advice, actually, I, I, um, I went back to Vallejo Metallics and by random happenstance actually had picked some up at Adepticon, God, whenever that was, three years ago. Um, and, and had, so I had some in my, in my painting archive which is my my box of paint that hasn't been used, and um, so I've been so I've been doing been doing line highlights with them on top of the dark star, and it and it is where the coverage is amazing. I mean, it's it's great paint for miniature modeling, but yeah. I haven't I haven't yet found anything that's as truly vibrant as the dark star, although arguably it's too much. I suspect that these turbo dork paints are quite a good mid mid point between those. Then I'm I'm I certainly feel like I'm going to continue favoring Vallejo overall. Um, but they're really nice to have in the arsenal. And I think for doing something that's going like, so I'm intentionally using them in the army so that the um, Nazgul style models look different to the orcs. 
Um, so I think having having something that's contrasting within the, you know, the basing schemes the same, I'm approaching fabric textures in the same way, and I'm actually painting the, the weapon tips in the same way as I was painting the orc weapons. So it's very specifically trying to paint the uh, beaten armor differently. Um, so it called for a different paint, which is fortunate because I had been. I'm, I'm quite looking forward to seeing how you paint those Nazgul's actually, because I'm kind of hoping slash expecting um, that you'll do several different kinds of black in there. Yeah. So um, like a brown black for the for the for the Nazgul because it's a beast and it's leathery and a, yeah. and a black gray for the cloth on there, like a true black for the for the dude sitting on top of it and stuff like that. Yeah, it's been quite. It's mostly just figuring out which range of greys you want to use for which yeah and then knocking it back so the, i've been doing the horses in black as well so i've been more looking at kind of working down through i guess the games workshop paints would be um eshin gray and then storm vermin fur whichever way around that is so storm vermin and skaven blight are brown black Skaven Blight Dinge, right? Yeah, Skaven Blight Dinge and Storm Vermin for fur have got brown in them. So okay. they're, a dirt, they're a dirty black. Um, Eshin Grey, Dawnstone, Administratum Grey are what I would call true black. So they're black yeah. through to white with no colour in them. Yeah, yeah. So I've been using Eshin Grey as the one and I think a bit of Dawnstone um, yeah. for the horse. And then for the the robes um i've been using um the space wolf grays so um yeah like a blue black yeah rust gray fenrisian gray um not the fang actually uh, i think it's dark reaper i'm using as the yeah the lowest one i don't i don't know if that's the correct order of things that's that's the yeah that's the bottom correct the in inverted black, commas yeah. um Largely just because, um, although I do favor using stuff like Vallejo, and I think actually when approaching things like blacks and grays, Vallejo probably has a deeper range because there's a lot of, uh, particularly the model color um, range that's available for stuff like Flames of War or historical uh, military uniforms where actually those are quite useful. Um, I needed to keep track of what I was doing and having something, in, you know, there's paints in Vallejo that are called like dark gray, very dark gray military dark gray and they look exactly the same on the palette yeah <laughs> and then when you when when it dries you're like oh that is that's complete i can see that that's different from the previous model i painted uh, but the bottle looks the same and it's got basically the same description so having so, something so i more, watched go in go on sorry Adam. yeah just 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 having a name of paint that is uh something a bit more like oh okay that's what that is like i always remember that i'm highlighting leather up to ungore flesh which is easy. Yeah. I, I can't. I used to use an ochre paint from Vallejo, and I, I cannot reorder it because I can't remember what it was called. And there's like twelve of them, so I've just <laughs> moved to Ungor Flash because um, I'm lazy. So, so I watched um, I w one of Dan Darren Latham videos before he um, took, got told to take all his stuff down. Um, yeah. He did a Raven Guard tutorial, um, and his his Raven Guard, which is kind of a blue black recipe has thunderhawk blue in the middle of it if i recall correctly yeah um so it goes it's like black dark reaper and then i think it goes to thunderhawk blue and then it goes into i think administratum gray i think blending yeah. all the way through the layers blah 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 and all that jazz but i was i i watched it and i'm like thunderhawk blue That's a bit bizarre. but as you <laughs> but look, say i mean it's you know, saying with the metals gray. Uh, yeah. with your metals shining through several layers 
he yeah. he obviously knows his theory well enough that having a bit of turquoise popping below the surface gives you something yeah exactly. um something that you and i can only dream of perhaps <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, hours really and hours, and hours and hours of a day job experimenting with paint palettes you know that would be amazing wouldn't it adam being able to sit at home and paint all day what a what a world that would be yeah it's interesting uh, as a burn because i don't really get to experiment with paint schemes at all for money yeah. um you know historically i've been given a scheme very specifically whether that's you or hinton or, or whoever um, I've got a bit more free reign on um, the Lord of the Rings Commission, and yeah, I'm starting to experiment a bit more. Um, and um, some, and a lot of that is borrowing from um, texture experiments on my Beast Claw Raiders, um, particularly with the kind of cross hatching, um, washing more than just flesh shades. So, kind of working with reds and blues and um, purples over flesh, and then highlighting back up. So you've got a you know warmer or colder. Um, mm kind of mid-tones um before moving up to your highlight um so yeah uh, i take the point <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so the final kind of thing for me on painting uh, just because they've always been really good uh, and i've mentioned them already and um, they used to sponsor the hard sex podcast but um i've just done a big paint order from goblin gaming um they they seem to have quite a lot of um deals going on at the moment i got sent a, a loyalty voucher of five, an extra five percent off so i've just dropped about 50 60 quid on uh on replacing some of the paints I've been using uh, most for uh, commission work um, so that there are full pots sitting there for any extensions of stuff. Um, so if you're, if you're looking for paint, they're a good place to go for, for me in the UK, because they carry Army Painter, Vallejo, and Games Workshop, as well as the Humbrol stuff. Um, and they've recently started carrying Airfix models. So I suspect that they're also going to be leaning into um, looking at the paints that you might use for more historical stuff too. Um, and they also carry um, quite a lot of basing materials um, and um, the the brushes as well. So you can kind of get the army painter brushes or the games workshop brushes. Um, yeah. So, so the um, other thing, the uh, other thing that I, that I, I'll just show Adam this on, on the screen. And the other thing I probably should mention is I finally got my order from the States there yesterday. And so I, I can't remember what I saw it on now, but I just saw this thing advertised and they're basically like little top hats and about the size of your thumb. It looks like um, a contraceptive device, to be honest. Does, doesn't it? Especially when I put it on the top of my finger. Um, <laughs> but um, it's basically a cap that, and it's squidgy. Um, it's a cap that goes on the top of a GW bottle. And well, allegedly, I haven't actually tried it yet. Um, that goes on the top of a GW bottle and turns it into a dropper bottle. Oh, cool. Um, I've actually got a, a, a dead one here that I can just try it on. So you take the whole kind of lid off and then... Yeah, I can that. confirm. They just... Hey. You know, so assuming that the Games Workshop paints are actually liquid enough to do that with without pouring half a pot of Lamy and medium in there, yeah. then that'll be... Um, so you put it on and then it's a bit squidgy, so you can kind of get it and you just squeeze it to get the paint out. Yeah, I have to sadly inform you that some of the paints that you left out on the desk for the last year are pretty solid due to the massive plate glass window that they're next to. Yeah, I do worry about things getting baked there. Um, but it was kind of inevitable. Oh... Yeah, it's I mean, hard to get these things back off though. Now that I've just put it on a dead pot. 
come on, I'll figure that out later. And um, but they do, they do. I am they they show promise. Like to be able to turn a GW bottle into a dropper bottle is amazing. So. Yeah. Um, and I quite like that you found the actual solution for that, as opposed to the endless Instagram videos that I've seen of people, yeah, like, people like transferring oh. stuff into like really like this is a time consuming hobby as it is like i think that's a really good solution changing the cat but like pouring your paint out into a different bottle like i i do not have time for that um at all people saying oh yeah once you get good at it you can do one every five minutes and i'm like and multiplying that by the number of paints i have i mean even i could paint a model before i finished my, all my paint <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa let's not take stuff <laughs> say stuff we can't take back <laughs> Um, cool. I'm I'm quite hyped about doing some painting, so I might I might jump and do yeah, some cool. this afternoon. I might even start painting the Inquisitor, so that maybe oh, by the time this is released next Friday, we're recording on Sunday for context. Maybe there'll even be a picture to accompany it. That might be promising too much, so I shouldn't have said that at all. Um, thanks very much for listening i think we're gonna to wrap up there uh thanks to my co-hosts uh george who's popped off to look after his daughter which is fully reasonable um and uh to andy as well thanks for listening Always a pleasure um thanks again to uh chris chanter exit 23 games for the turbo dork uh paints thanks to jay channer as ever uh for our musical interludes and we will see you next time where i'm hoping that we'll be joined by donald taylor to talk all things ogre have a great week